This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter offer code Irish Times at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace's European Operations and Customer Service Office is located right here in Dublin. Squarespace, build it beautiful. You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Hi, and welcome to a special edition of Worldview from the Irish Times on the aftermath of Friday's brutal and sad killings in Paris. I'm Patrick Smith, and I'll be talking to our correspondents in Paris about the mood there, what is known about those responsible, and the likely fallout politically. Lara Marlowe, based in the city, almost French at this stage, and Rune McCormack, our foreign affairs correspondent. I'll also be talking to Brussels correspondent Suzanne Lynch and London editor Dennis Staunton about the effect in those cities and international reaction. But first to Lara. I heard a correspondent this morning talking about how she was walking down the Champs-Élysées last night when a car backfired. The panicky response of fellow walkers reflected a sense of fear that has engulfed the capital. Fear, anger and a sense of new engagement with the war on ISIS perhaps. Could you give us a sense of that mood generally and in your own neighbourhood? Yes, I mean, the, the Paris is very somber at the moment. Uh, there, there's a very strong feeling of grief, of anger, um, resignation. The, everyone feels certain that there will be more attacks. Uh, and at the same time, resolve. Um, I spoke to an Irish cafe owner, uh, whose cafe is next door to the Petit Cambodge, where one of the massacres occurred on Friday night. And he, he used the Second World War slogan, keep calm and carry on. And um, I would say 90 percent of the, the many, many people I've talked to in the streets the last couple of days have said to me that this will not change their lives. They're not, they're not going to change their behavior, their shopping habits, um, going out and so on. They just feel this is something that they have to live with. Uh, you, you spent some years living in, in, in Beirut, um, a city that uh, saw regular attacks of this sort of kind. Do you get any sense of parallel? Oh, yes, very much. Um, several people have said to me, you know, the Middle East has come to Paris. And one of the big issues at the moment is, should François Hollande have engaged France in Syria? Should he be bombing Syria? Is it his fault? Is it because France has joined in this war against Islamic State that France has become a victim? Um, but one thing which I, I find positive in a way is that many people say to me, uh, the Lebanese, the Syrians, the Iraqis, uh, the Libyans, They've been living through this kind of thing for years and years and years, and now we're living through it too. And I think that there's a recognition in France on a level that there never has been before of the the, the suffering of what people go through in these other countries. And and that, in a way, I mean, it's horrible that this is happening here, but the fact that they're able to to sympathize with what people in the Middle East have gone through uh, is, is a good thing. It gives them a better understanding of the situation. Uh, there was also a sense uh, that I got from here of a lot of y- young people particularly wanting to get out of their houses last night to express their, their sympathy and their solidarity. And there was a great rally in the Place de la République. Um, can you give us a sense of that? Um, yes, it's quite similar. Well, the interesting thing is it's happening despite the ban on street demonstrations. The government has said very clearly that people are not to gather in the streets. And it's as if it was uh, stronger than, than, than any sort of ban. People want to be together. They want to, to, to pay homage to the victims. And you had at the Place de la République, which was the gathering place after the Charlie Hebdo massacre. Also, uh, I was at, back at the Bataclan last night. Uh, you have people 
coming and bringing those little votive candles and, and flowers and sometimes putting down little messages. Um, the slogan this time is Je suis Paris. Last time it was Je suis Charlie. Uh, but, but I think people feel this need to show solidarity. Uh, another example of that is you've had a, a huge um, uh, uh, arrival of people at blood banks uh, trying to donate blood for the, the 350 wounded people, so much so that the blood banks have said, stop, stop, we, we, we have more than we can use at the moment, uh, wait till next week. Now, you've spoken a bit about Hollande's uh, response. Um, he's declared a state of emergency, very defiant words. But is the government seen as having let the ball drop? I mean, is, is there a security lapse here? Or have you a sense that these sort of attacks are impossible to stop completely? Uh, I think both. Um, the, the semblance of national unity, which everyone is trying to achieve, uh, is pretty flimsy. Right-wing politicians in particular, uh, Nicolas Sarkozy, um, also Alain Juppé, François Fillon, Fillon, are questioning the wisdom of Hollande's foreign policy. Uh, Fillon and Juppé have suggested that really France ought to side with Bashar al-Assad in, in Syria. Um, but the, the real question is, France has been on maximum security alert since the attacks in January, and that wasn't enough to prevent these attacks. Uh, so, so what would be? I mean, they, they announced they were mobilizing another, bringing 1,500 more army troops to Paris, and I've seen some of them in the streets. Um, is this really going to prevent attacks? Why didn't the intelligence services um, cop on to the fact that there were three separate teams being organized to create mayhem in Paris on a Friday night. And is this playing politically in, with the far right? Uh, do we see the National Front uh, making, uh, contemplating making gains out, out of this? Um, well, they haven't said publicly we are going to, to win from this, but certainly I think that is in their minds. Marine Le Pen uh, made a statement about um, closing radical mosques and, and de deporting radical Muslims. And Manuel Valls, the prime minister, said virtually the same thing last night on, on, on French television. So there is a tendency among politicians to ape the extreme right to, to copy their policies because they feel there's a hunger for this on the part of the public. And certainly a lot of the people I've been talking to talked about the, the need for authority. They want the government to crack down. They want them to imprison all of these people who are on the famous S list of, of radical Muslims. Uh, so, so there is, and, and France has a history actually of turning to military people in, in times of crisis. Remember General de Gaulle, um, th th there's definitely that fear on the part of many that um, the government should do more. Um, Ruin, what, what do we know now about the perpetrators and where they came from? Uh, largely it appears they're homegrown and, and this represents a major challenge in the banlieue. What are the, what are the French doing there? Well, Paddy, there were seven attacks on Friday night in total, three at the Stade de France, uh, three at cafes and restaurants in the 11th arrondissement in Paris and one by far the most deadly at the Bataclan uh, concert venue, uh, also in the 11th arrondissement. The public prosecutor here in Paris last night said that there were three teams of uh, coordinated attackers uh, uh, behind all seven uh, of, these, of these attacks. Uh, seven people were killed. Uh, the three bombers at the Stade de France detonated uh, explosive vests uh, and killed themselves. 
um, a similar incident happened at a cafe uh, near Place de, de la Nation in the 11th arrondissement um, where uh, the, the uh, suicide bomber blew himself up. Um, police say they killed one of the attackers at the Bataclan and the other two blew themselves up with, with their belts. Um, the prosecutor began last night to outline what the uh, authorities have gleaned so far about, about the suicide bombers and about the, the, um, the teams behind these attacks. What we know, we know most about an individual, a 29-year-old um, man named Ismail Omar Mustafai, who is originally from uh, Courcouron, which is on the outskirts of Paris. Um, the French authorities believe he went to Syria sometime in late 2013 to early 2014. They know that he went to Turkey and he seems to have gone off uh, the radar for a number of months around that time before reappearing in Chartres, which is where he, he was living in France. Um, he took part in the attack on the Bataclan on Friday night. Um, and it seems, um, according to reports that have emerged in Paris this morning, that he was identified by part of a severed finger that, that came off when, when he blew himself up inside the venue. Now, he had appeared on the police's radar before. Um, he had been charged eight times with relatively minor offences, such as uh, driving without a license and, and um, relatively minor delinquency charges uh, as well. But he never spent any time in prison and... Um, that was pointed to yesterday because a number of, in a number of previous incidents, um, the perpetrators have spent time in prison and there's been a lot of discussion in France about the radicalizing effect of, of spending time in, in prison. Um, but since 2010, this individual was on the intelligence uh, services radar. Uh, we've been told that there was a file on him. He wasn't seen as somebody who was who belonged to an organised uh, jihadi gang, uh, but he was uh, he was described in these files as somebody who may have been radicalised, who was suspected of becoming radicalised. Um, although, as I say, he was not uh, seen as belonging to any any network or or specific group. Now, the question for the authorities now is what sort of network was operating behind this? Was it organized by Belgium? We know that there are connections to Belgium because there were a number of arrests there. We also know that um, one of the cars that was uh, used by the uh, attackers, at least by the wider gang, was, was stopped as it attempted to cross back into, into Belgium on Saturday. Um, but the question is, is there a network in Chartres that the intelligence services were not aware of? Um, how much of it was organized from Belgium and how much from within France? And clearly, as Lara says, there will be questions for the intelligence services out of this. Um, we know that in several major attacks in France in the last number of years, one in Toulouse uh, in 2012 uh, and the Charlie Hebdo attacks in January of this year, the perpetrators were in both cases, in the case of Mohamed Merah in Toulouse and the Kouachi brothers in, in Paris in January, they were all known to the authorities in advance and serious questions were asked uh, in the aftermath of both those attacks and will be asked again this time about whether they could have done more to prevent the attacks. If, if I could mention one other thing, um, Omar Ismail Mustafai, the young man, uh, the only uh, clearly identified um, attacker so far, six members of his entourage have been arrested since last night, including his father, and they're being questioned by police. And the authorities are stressing that these people are not actually suspects. They just want to find out as much as they possibly can about him. Uh, one of the things that struck me was that his neighbors in, in Koukouran, where he grew up, um, 
were all stunned in total disbelief and said that they, how could this possibly be? They were such nice people, uh, and we heard similar things um, in, in in the past about uh, jihadists who've uh, who've committed atrocities in France. But there is a reality, I think, that very large numbers uh, of uh, young French Muslims are are fighting in um, Syria. And is, is there evidence that some of them are now coming back? Uh, well, as uh, Rwanda said, this uh, Omar Ismail Mustafi uh, apparently had gone to Syria. Um, the Kouachi brothers had gone to Yemen for training, both of them. Uh, Koulibaly, the other attacker in January, had not, as far as anyone could tell, been abroad. Um, the, the man who tried to, who beheaded his boss in near Lyon, uh, last summer uh, had been to Syria. Uh, so yes, there is evidence that they are coming back, and, and this is a nightmare. Another nightmare, uh, which has been you know, sh- shaken around by the, the extreme right, is, is the idea that these floods of migrants coming, fleeing the war in Syria are going to harbor uh, Islamist uh, jihadist attackers in the same, you know, that they're going to use the migration, the mass migration, as a sort of Trojan horse. And indeed, they, they found a Syrian passport uh, next to one of the suicide bombers at the Stade de France. Uh, now, was it, which seems very strange to me, if you're going to blow yourself up, do you really carry your passport with you? And so people are asking, was this a plant? What is going on here? Um, but maybe this is meant to accredit uh, the, the thesis that the, the jihadists are using the migration uh, as a way of infiltrating Europe. And, and presumably this means that the, the, the politics of migration, uh, particularly the, the National Front and it, its uh, anti-immigrant stance, will, will take a higher... Uh, Absolutely. You know, will, will assume a higher, higher um, profile. Um, Ruin, the French government last year um, established a programme of sort of anti-radicalism and anti-extremism in, in the, the suburbs. Is there any sign that this has had any effect whatsoever? It's true that they've put a lot of work into it. We also know that the intelligence services have done a lot of recruiting uh, over the last number of years. Um, but it's also the case, as, as you uh, alluded to earlier, that France has seen more of its own citizens, more than any other European state, more, more of its own citizens go to, to, the, uh, to Syria in the last number of years. Um, and, and they simply say that it's quite difficult to keep track of, of these people. They have thousands of files on known radicals both in France and those who have, have, have left and, and may come back. But there's also a second category of people who, um, much like Mohamed Merah, who was behind the Toulouse attacks, like the Kouachi brothers, and, and it seems like Ismail uh, Omar Mustafai, who are not senior people, not seen as senior movers in, in, in these circles, and therefore can travel a little more freely and can come and go and disappear from the intelligence services uh, radar. So it, it's a difficult uh, situation for the intelligence services um, and, and clearly they're going to come under a lot of pressure. Now, Manuel Valls, the Prime Minister, said last night that he doesn't think the intelligence services did, did anything wrong and he made the point that, look, if you want to live in an open, free society, there's going to be a trade-off between uh, your freedom and security and that you're never going to reduce the risk to, to zero. But he argues that in the circumstances, the intelligence services uh, did all all that they they could. And he's also pointed to the fact that there have been a number of arrests in in recent days uh, and that all means available are being being dedicated to this investigation. Finally, is there um, 
Any evidence that large numbers of Irish people were caught up in the periphery of, of the, these events? Well, we know that uh, one Irish citizen, uh, a man who was visiting Paris for the weekend, uh, was caught up in the attack on the Bataclan. He suffered some gunshot wounds. Uh, he was operated on on Saturday, and we're told uh, by Irish officials that he's now in a in a serious uh, but stable condition in hospital. A number of other Irish people were in the vicinity uh, around the 11th arrondissement when it when it uh, when the attacks occurred. Um, one Irishman, a 35 year old uh, computer developer uh, he was in a nearby restaurant and had to stay there for a number of hours um, as police kept him in and some of the injured from the Bataclan began to arrive. Um, the Irish Embassy in Paris has received a lot of calls from people who are concerned, who are asking about um, uh, relatives and, and friends and there are numbers that have been issued through the Department of Foreign Affairs uh, for people who want to contact the Embassy uh, if they believe that any of their family members or friends have been caught up in this. Actually you too is, was in Paris for concerts at Bercy on Saturday night and, and tonight, Sunday. They cancelled both concerts uh, when this happened on Friday night. But late yesterday, Bono and, and the band went to the Bataclan and uh, paid homage to the victims of uh, the, the 89 people who died there. Thank you, Lara, and thank you, Ruin. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Start your free trial site today with no credit card required at squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code IRISHTIMES to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. And now to uh, London and uh, Brussels. Dennis, London is on a state of high alert. There are fears that it could be next. And, and is there talk of new measures? There's, there are some measures, uh, or at least there's, uh, there's a kind of an upping of the ante of existing measures. The, uh, the, the threat level officially is called severe, which is the second highest. And what it means is that uh, an attack is likely. But it's been at the same level since the summer of 2014. So uh, they haven't cranked it up to the very highest level, which is critical, which means that uh, they have knowledge of an impending attack. And so the, the threat level remains high. You, uh, there's a bit more visibility in terms of the police, and particularly at things like ports, places like ports, airports, and all of that. And David Cameron said uh, when, he, uh, when he came out uh, after a meeting with the security cabinet, he said immediately in the few hours after the Paris attacks that uh, it was, uh, you know, the same thing could certainly happen in Britain and that, uh, that Britain was just as, uh, as likely a target as uh, France was for an attack like this. There's some reports one, one hears that the British are somewhat more confident that they have better control on, on things like guns, possibly better intelligence, and um, have done more to counter in Muslim uh, extremism in the, in the, in the community. Do you, do you get that sense? Well, there certainly seems to have been an awful lot of activity in the last six or 12 months, an awful lot of arrests, and, uh, and it does seem that the efforts which they've uh, really been 
been exerting over the last few years in this uh, sort of multi-pronged strategy of engaging with the uh, Muslim communities, but then also this quite uh, intrusive intelligence work, that that is paying off. And also the mainstream Muslim community, which of course is the overwhelming majority of Muslims in Britain, they uh, see it as in their interests uh, to try to prevent the radicalization of uh, young British Muslims. They see uh, how some of these young people's lives are ruined, their families' lives are ruined. You've had a whole succession of high-profile young British Muslims going off to Syria to join ISIS. A number of them have been killed, most recently uh, Mohammed Mwazi, the so-called Jihadi John, who was killed on Thursday in an American drone strike, and also Cardiff-born Riyadh Khan, who was killed by uh, by a British drone strike. And so uh, certainly the British do feel that their intelligence work is at the moment, uh, it looks it looks good, and they feel as if they've got some kind of a handle on what's going on. And they also feel as if their relationships with the communities are good in many parts of Britain. Having said that, you really only know how good intelligence is, uh, you know, after the event. And unfortunately, you know, you, you really, you only become aware of it when there is actually an intelligence failure. Uh, you also have a situation, I think, in Britain, which is a bit different. First of all, the Muslim community is smaller than it is in France, both numerically it's 2.7 million compared to 4.6 million in France, and also in terms of the proportion of the population. It's about 4.5% as opposed to 7.5% in France. And also, I think, a different atmosphere that uh, although Britain is not a religious society, it's not, unlike France, it's not a secular society, and it's much more overtly a pluralist, multicultural society. And that, I think, possibly makes some of the work of community policing a bit easier than it would be in France. Now, in terms of the political fallout, I mean, Cameron's been involved in a, uh, an attempt to cajole the Labour Party into support uh, for a more vigorous action in, in Syria. Uh, and do you think that this will play into that? And do you think, for example, it will play into the politics of, of uh, migration? I think to take the second point first, it will almost certainly play into the politics of migration, not least because uh, this report that a Syrian passport was found near one of the uh, perpetrators of the Paris attacks uh, and the suggestion that this person came uh, through one of the the refugee migrant routes through Greece and then onwards into France, that that has already uh, got people going in some parts of the British media in terms of saying this uh, open or policy is, uh, you know, is creating all this problem. And so you have had, uh, not just in Britain, but elsewhere, right-wing commentators making statements like, you know, the barbarians are not at the gate, they're inside and there is no gate. And, uh, and so, so it will certainly play into that. And Nigel Farage, in fact, is making a speech about all of this in Basingstoke on Monday. Uh, I think where the Syria vote is concerned, it's more complicated because part of David Cameron's problem with uh, the, the vote to try to to authorize British uh, military intervention in Syria is that not only does he not have the support of the Labour Party, he also doesn't have the support of enough of his own Conservative Party. And uh, the reason that this thing has been long-fingered once again was because an all-party committee, which has a Conservative majority, suggested that 
he really hadn't made the case for it. And until such time as, uh, as he was really able to argue persuasively that it was in uh, Britain's interest and also that it would really make a, a material difference to the, uh, the Allied operation in Syria, then there was really no justification for putting it to a vote. Now, Suzanne, I might come to you. Um, the the response internationally has been very interesting. I mean, that most capitals have seen rallies in support of of the French, but uh, the Poles, for example, have closed their borders. Um, there have been arrests in, in in Belgium. Perhaps you could look at at what's going on around Europe. Yes, um, well, I suppose the attacks coincide, if you like, with a series of, of high-level international meetings. Anyway, uh, the G20 leaders are meeting on Sunday and Monday in Turkey, and already today there's been response from there. And we've seen the two heads of the, the main European institutions, Jean-Claude Juncker and Donald Tusk, um, make comments on uh, the latest attacks and perhaps their implications for EU policy on migration. Juncker has said this morning he's warned um, he, uh, warned against base reactions, he called what's happened, and he said the people who did these attacks in, crim- in Paris were criminals, um, not asylum seekers. Um, and he's kind of called for people to calm down, if you like, about linking uh, the events in Paris on Friday to uh, the EU's migration policy. Now, obviously, it's really going to put this in the spotlight. Um, as Dennis said there, the um, the report that a Syrian passport was found, and, and further that we're seeing in East European media, a Serbian newspaper, for example, reported that one of the um, assailants entered in Greece and then they have records uh, in early October then he went on to uh, Macedonia to Serbia, applied for asylum there in Serbia on October the 7th then crossed the border into Croatia and after that ended up in France. So these are the kind of stories um, that are going uh, to give huge political capital to a lot of people on the right uh, who are opposed to this open doors policy of migration that was espoused by countries including Germany. And what, what happened in, in, in Belgium? Yes, well, um, Belgium, I was there yesterday evening. Uh, there were reports yesterday afternoon of a number of counter-terror raids in Belgium, um, and three people were arrested in the suburb of, of Meulenbeek. That's a western suburb of Brussels, but, but very central, uh, only six or seven stops, for example, metro stops from uh, the European institutions in Brussels. Um, and this area of Brussels has previously had links uh, to jihadi activity. Uh, last January, when the Belgian police um, did a number of counter-terrorism terrorism raids after Charlie Hebdo, a number of arrests were made in this area of Mullenbeck. Now, I went down there yesterday evening. Uh, police were there, very heavily armed, a bomb squad, and they removed a car from that area. Um, and the uh, insinuation now seems to be that uh, this car is one of the cars that uh, was involved um, in the attacks on Friday night. The Belgian Prime Minister was on TV here yesterday evening, and he said that at least one of the three people arrested were in Paris on Friday night. Um, Belgium has a very, very um, high proportion of so-called foreign fighters that have gone to fight in Syria. Um, per capita, it is the highest. Um, we've also had a number of incidents here in Belgium. The assassinations in the Jewish Museum in June 2014, where four people were killed, uh, that took place. And then in August, uh, we had a man who, a heavy armed man who uh, boarded a train going from Amsterdam to Paris. He boarded in Brussels and um, fire, uh, shots were fired before he was overcome by passengers, including the, the two American tourists. So uh, the terror, the, the authorities have been on high alert uh, here. Uh, there's been a number of foiled attempts. 
um, and very strong links between France and Belgium. And this seems to be, again, what's happened here, that at least three of the people involved in the attacks look like now they were Belgian nationals. Do you think that this is going to inject any new uh, deb- uh, dynamic into the uh, peace talks that are going on in, in relation to Syria? Uh, particularly, I think that there's talks around the issue of, of support for Assad at, at the G- mm. G20 and mm. um, the other talks are, are continuing in, in Vienna. Yes, um, well, yes, the, the talks began, second round of talks in Vienna were taking place just as the, as the um, attacks happened on Friday. But this morning, the UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon, ahead of the G20 in, in Turkey, has said that this was a rare moment um, of diplomatic opportunity for the world to try and stop uh, ending and try and stop the violence in Syria. So I suppose a sense of hope there that this, these awful attacks We'll try and galvanise a cohesive and serious response from the international community. But again, as Dennis was saying here, very complex in terms of trying to get British support, for example, for further action in Syria, getting any kind of support for US troops on the ground in this area. But I suppose Russia will go into this G20 meeting knowing that ISIS and the threat of Islamic State, which it has consistently said is the reason why it's in Syria, despite um, Western officials contradicting that, Russia will go into this meeting now with that high on the agenda and all people around the table having to accept that this needs to be the priority in the, in the short and immediate term to try and take an international approach to defeating ISIS. Thank you very much, Suzanne. That's all today from Worldview and me, Patrick Smith. My thanks to Lara Marlowe, Ruan McCormick, Suzanne Lynch, Dennis Staunton and to Sinead O'Shea who produced and JJ Vernon on sound.